Hey, 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 Erica here. Welcome to today's episode where we will be learning how to connect neuroplasticity and resilience. As you might already know, our brains basically function by making connections and associations. Brains like to link what is happening now with what has happened in the past. We create a kind of mental map of connections. When we first come across something, it takes us a while to get to grips with it. So if we are learning a new skill, it might take minutes, days, or even months, depending on the complexity of what we are learning Our brains gradually create a map, and this takes a lot of energy. But once the map is created, our brains can focus on other things. We call this process forming a habit. Habits are run by the more energy-efficient parts of our brain. Put it quite simply, our brains operate by forming habits. In the first few years of life, more than one million new neural connections form every second. After this period of rapid proliferation, connections are reduced through a process called pruning, which allows brain circuits to become more efficient. In the proliferation and pruning process, simpler neural connections form first, followed by more complex circuits. The timing is genetic, but early experiences determine whether the circuits are strong or weak. Scientists now know a major ingredient in this developmental process is the serve and return relationship between children and their parents and other caregivers in the family or community. Young children naturally reach out for interaction through babbling, facial expressions, and gestures. And adults respond with the same kind of vocalizing and gesturing back at them. In the absence of such responses, or if their responses are unreliable or inappropriate, the brain's architecture does not form as expected, which can lead to disparities in learning and behavior. This also constitutes to our traumatic memories where needs went unmet and a sense of worth and identity were not built healthily. This forms the basis of our belief structures or framework of reference. Let's now look at the amygdala hijack and how our unhealthy and irrational belief structures of past trauma and hurt form threats that we trigger into our present realities. Have you ever lost control of your emotions and did something in the heat of the moment that you later regretted? Perhaps you've lost it or blown up at someone, your partner or child, work colleague, or perhaps the driver of another car, to such a degree that later 
you realized was uncalled for? If your answer is yes, then you've probably been hijacked by your amygdala. The term amygdala hijacking was first used by psychologist Daniel Goleman in his 1995 book, Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ, to refer to an immediate and intense emotional reaction that's out of proportion to the situation. In other words, it's when someone loses it or seriously overreacts to something or someone. Goleman's term aims to recognize that we have an ancient structure in our brain, the amygdala, that is designed to respond swiftly to a threat. While the amygdala is intended to protect us from danger, it can interfere with our functioning in the modern world where threats are often more subtle in nature. What causes this amygdala hijack? When you see, hear, touch, or taste something, that sensory information first heads to the thalamus, which acts as your brain's relay station. The thalamus then relays that information to the neocortex, the thinking brain. From there, it is sent to the amygdala, the emotional brain, which produces the appropriate emotional response. However, when faced with a threatening situation, the thalamus sends sensory information to both the amygdala and the neocortex. If the amygdala senses danger, it makes a split-second decision to initiate the fight-or-flight response before the neocortex has time to overrule it. This cascade of events trigger the release of stress hormones, including the hormones epinephrine, also known as adrenaline and cortisol. These hormones prepare your body to flee or flight by increasing your heart rate, elevating your blood pressure, and boosting your energy levels, among other things. While many of the threats we face today are symbolic, evolutionary, our brains evolved to deal with physical threats to our survival that required a quick response. As a result, our body still responds with biological changes that prepare us to fight or flight. A psychological threat is the same as physical threat. Whether we are psychologically or physically in danger, your brain responds the same. How do we prevent the amygdala hijack? The best way to prevent an amygdala hijack is to increase your emotional intelligence, specifically with mindfulness and stress management skills. Emotional intelligence describes your ability to understand and manage your emotions and use this information in positive ways to relieve stress, communicate effectively, empathize with others, and diffuse conflict. We will cover all these aspects in coming episodes, so hold tight. A person who is emotionally intelligent has strong connections between the emotional center of the brain and the executive or thinking center. Emotionally intelligent people know how to de-escalate their own emotions by becoming engaged 
focused and attentive to their thoughts and feelings. Some say that the amygdala hijack is a failure of plasticity. Well, resilience is marked by greater activation in the left prefrontal cortex of the brain. Richard Davidson in his book, The Emotional Life of Your Brain, writes, The amount of activation in the left prefrontal region of a resilient person can be 30 times that in someone who is not resilient. Davidson's early research found that signals from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala and from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex determine how quickly the brain will recover from an upsetting experience. More activity in the left prefrontal cortex shortens the period of amygdala activation. Less activation in certain zones of the prefrontal cortex resulted in longer-lasting amygdala activity after an experience evoking negative emotion. Basically, these people's brains were less able to turn off negative emotion once it was turned on. In later research in 2012, with the help of MRIs, Davidson confirmed that the more white matter or axons connecting neurons lying between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, the more resilient you are. The converse is also true. Less white matter is less resilient. By turning down the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex is able to quiet signals associated with negative emotions. The brain can then plan and act effectively without being stifled by negative emotion. Don't despair if you aren't currently able to be this resilient. Every brain is capable of increasing the connections between the brain regions. Let's have a closer look at that. In the book, The Brain That Changes Itself, Norman Deutsch points out that there is a real evidence that we can rewire our brains with our thoughts. Supporting this is Hebbian theory, developed by Donald Hebb back in the late 1940s. Hebb's theory of neuroscience can be summarized as neurons that fire together, wire together. It posits that when we learn new things, the nerve cells within the brain begin to change to fit the required processes. Therefore, the more you focus on something, the more you analyze a problem, the deeper the connection you create in your brain. And this is neuroplasticity. So let's have a closer look at this too. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to reorganize itself by forming new neural connections throughout life. Neuroplasticity allows the neurons or nerve cells in the brain to compensate for injury and disease and to adjust their activities in response to new situations or to changes in their environment. Neuroplasticity refers to the brain's ability to adapt or as Dr. Campbell puts it, it refers to the physiological changes in the brain that happens as the result of our interactions with our environment. 
from the time the brain begins to develop in utero until the day we die, the connections among the cells in our brains reorganize in response to our changing needs. This dynamic process allows us to learn from and adapt to different experiences. Many people have also been misled to believe that intelligence is something that you are born with, that you either have the ability to be clever or you don't. They believe that intelligence is fixed and that it is preset and is not going to improve. However, it is good news to know that this is not true. Your intelligence develops according to how you determine it to develop. It is dynamic and it goes hand in hand with learning how to use your brain correctly. It is something that develops through your entire lifetime. The more you stimulate your brain, the more you will develop your thinking skills. The more sophisticated your brain is going to become and there is no limit to what your potential could be. Our brains are truly extraordinary. Unlike computers, which are built to certain specifications and receive software updates periodically, our brains can actually receive hardware updates in addition to software updates. Different pathways form and fall dormant and are created and are discarded according to our experiences. When we learn something new, we create new connections with our neurons. We rewire our brains to adapt to new circumstances. This happens on a daily basis, but it's also something that we can encourage and stimulate. This explains why it is hard to change habits, but easier to create new ways of working. Very simply, it's because our brains prefer to go with the neural pathways that are already developed. Let's unpack these concepts in a little bit more detail in psychological terms and a little less in neurophysiological terms as I've just explained. Your brain is made up of nerves. Each nerve looks like a tree. It has a trunk called an axon and branches called dendrites. You are taking in information from the environment around you all the time through your five senses. Your brain is processing and storing this information by building branches on the nerves in your brain. A new branch is made for every new piece of information. Proteins are made and used to grow new branches to hold the information from your thoughts. This process is called protein synthesis. This occurs through a physical process in the brain called myelination. The more a pathway is used, the stronger it becomes. When we repeat an action, myelin, a fatty covering, coats the neural pathway, making connections stronger and more secure. Memory is the information stored on the branches of the nerves. As you continue to meditate on a particular thought, more branches grow. The connections between those branches and the nerve get stronger and the memory becomes permanent. Thus, the more you meditate on a thought, the more you reinforce it. 
the more branches you have on a particular nerve, the stronger or more intelligent that memory is. Your brain performs 400 billion actions per second, of which you are conscious of 2,000. The average human brain has 100 billion nerves. Each nerve can grow between 150,000 and 200,000 branches. This is an enormous amount. To give you a more tangible understanding of how much information 150,000 to 250,000 branches is, you can fit the knowledge of an entire A-level subject on the nerve. Therefore, if you did four A-level subjects, you just need to use four nerves to pass. This is phenomenal. Neuroscientists have calculated that the total amount of storage space for information that you have in your brain is 3 million years. Never again can you turn around and say that you are stupid or think that you don't have a great mind. You have an amazing brain. Many people believe that they are not intelligent, but that is a lie. The truth is that every single person is gifted. However, what it all boils down to is not how much of your brain you are using, but how you are building the information on that nerve cell. In other words, what type of memories are you building? The quality of the information or memories stored in your brain depends on the quality of your thought life. If you are meditating on thoughts of fear, anxiety, self-hatred, low self-esteem, rejection, guilt, condemnation, bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, rage, resentment, and so forth, your brain is full of toxic memories and thoughts that are making you sick. The evidence from research over the past 25 years is that as you think and learn and stimulate your brain, you're going to build a lot of the strong memories in your brain, and that is excellent as the more of these strong memories you have in your brain, the more efficient your brain becomes, the more you develop nice, thick, stabilized branches, the more intelligent you are becoming. That strong memory could be a good memory of information that you can use to enhance your life. It can also be a bad, toxic memory. When you meditate on toxic thoughts, Toxic memories are physically built into the nerve networks in your brain. The thoughts result in the building of a good memory. Negative thoughts result in the building of a bad, toxic memory. Every single thought, whether it is positive or toxic, goes through the same cycle when it forms. The only difference is that the thoughts release different quantities of chemicals. Depending on which kind of thought it is, positive or toxic, it will have a different structure caused by those chemicals. As a result, memories that are built from negative toxic thoughts look very different to a positive, healthy memory. While you are building memory, you are also experiencing emotion. Learning and growing is also an emotional experience. 
the chemicals in your brain that carry the information from your thoughts also carry the emotion that you experienced with those thoughts. They are called information emotion chemicals. They carry both emotion and the imprint or copy of the memory that was built in your brain. These chemicals of emotions are living and dynamic. They are released in response to your thoughts and they flow through your entire body. They connect to receptors on the cells of your body and that is why you physically feel that emotional reaction. For example, while you are meditating on that thought of unforgiveness and bitterness about your mother-in-law, you physically feel that high-octane ping going off inside you. By the way, when we talk about a gut feeling, it is real. Your digestive system is connected to your brain by nerves. Your digestive system and brain communicate via these nerves. The small and large intestines are densely lined with these nerves as well as chemicals called neuropeptides and receptors that are busily exchanging information laden with emotional content. And this is what gives you that gut feeling. So while you are meditating on a thought, you're building memory and you're also experiencing emotion. The information from that thought is stored in the cortex of your brain as branches on the trees of your mind. The emotion is also physically stored in your brain in the form of chemicals that are housed in an area of the brain called amygdala in the deep limbic system. Depending on what you think about, you're either building healthy, lush trees in your brain, which are good memories, or you're building toxic, thorn trees, which are negative strongholds. Every time you think on that thought, those pre-existing memories in your brain are reactivated. For example, say that you have a pre-existing memory in your brain, which is a toxic thorn tree of bitterness towards your mother-in-law. At this moment, you begin to meditate again on a thought concerning how she has wronged you and your unforgiveness towards her. While you are busy meditating on your unforgiveness, you are building more branches on the thorn tree of bitterness in your brain, thus reinforcing it and making it stronger. Also, while you are meditating on that unforgiveness, the hypothalamus secretes chemicals that shoot into the trees of your mind where all your pre-existing memories are located. These chemicals generate a wave of electricity that passes through the trees of the mind. This makes you feel overwhelmed with anger, frustration, and powerlessness. Instead, we want to change this story in our mind and be free from these negative strongholds that these memories and ways of thinking about it are gripping you in. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom, says Viktor Frankl. There is a Native American parable of two wolves 
An old Cherokee is teaching his grandson about life. A fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it is between two wolves. One is evil, he's anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. He continued, the other is good, it is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? The old Shiroki simply replied, the one you feed. Whether or not it's your first time hearing this story, it serves as an important reminder of the power we have over our thoughts and emotions. It's easy to feel like a victim in challenging situations and circumstances in our lives. We want to understand our negative thoughts, feelings, and experiences, so we place blame on other people, objects, or events. We look outward to try to make sense of what's going on inside of us. We do this all the time. Why? It's our way of coping and feeling more in control of uncontrollable situations. The problem with this approach, however, is that it takes away our personal responsibility and freedom of choice. In our attempt to feel more in control by faulting others for our experience, we actually strip ourselves of our own power. That power is lost the moment we become dependent on other people or things to make us feel a certain way. Whether that feeling is positive or negative, we are no longer taking sole responsibility for our own emotions or thinking when we believe they are a result of anything other than our own choice. By exercising your freedom of choice, you can make a life-changing decision of which wolf you want to feed. Do you feed the wolf who is hungry for anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, annoyance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, ego? This evil wolf is also your inner critic. The one who tells you that you are a failure. The one who says that no one will love you or understand you for who you are. This wolf is a representation of your depression, your anxiety, and your low self-esteem. Do you want to feed this wolf? Are you feeding him already? By cutting off his food supply, you will be making a choice to use your energy and resources on thoughts, feelings, and emotions that serve you in healthy ways. While you can recognize the negative emotions occurring within you, you don't have to attach to them or continue to give them attention. You shifting your focus is a sign to that wolf that you are not interested in giving him food. And while it may take some time for that wolf to lose his strength and power, 
Eventually, he will surrender, as will your unhelpful thoughts and emotions. Once you stop fixating on them, they will eventually drift away. So, what about the other good wolf? Well, it certainly isn't going to feed itself. Just as you would with the bad wolf, it is imperative that you exercise your freedom of choice and decide to nourish the wolf of joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. We often look to external objects for our fulfillment and happiness. We develop expectations that these things, a new job, a relationship, a lavish vacation, a brand new pair of shoes, a glass of wine, or whatever else will finally make us feel the way we want to feel. And while this may bring momentary gratification, it isn't realistic to maintain this long term. Happiness isn't a conditional state. It is a state of being. True lasting happiness comes from making an active choice to be happy rather than depending on external things to make you happy. The more that we seek happiness and look for it as if it is a treasure that we will find, the less we are feeding the wolf that is inside of us. You already have everything you need to be happy because you are whole as you are right now. The feeling and experience of happiness comes from feeding the wolf from within. As he becomes bigger and stronger, he will be better equipped to handle life's challenges. If you choose to feed only him, he will always win. Which wolf are you feeding? Remember, you always have a choice. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way, says Viktor Frankl. Michael has just handed a report to his boss, Jan. Jareed said, thanks him for his work. It makes a number of small criticisms. Unfortunately, one of these comments touches a raw nerve with Michael, and he storms back to his office, feeling angry and upset. Michael knows that he needs to get over this so that his negative mood doesn't affect others. He takes a few deep breaths and writes down why he felt attacked by Jan. He then remembers that the overall quality of his work impressed her and that she wants him to improve and grow. He also enjoyed working on the project and deep down, he knows he did a good job. After taking a few minutes to reframe the situation, Michael no longer feels angry. He calls Jan to apologize for his behavior and then uses her suggestions to improve his report. In this situation, Michael used cognitive restructuring to overcome negative reactive thinking. We'll look at how you can use cognitive restructuring throughout the rest of this episode.
what is cognitive restructuring? Cognitive restructuring is a useful technique for understanding unhappy feelings and moods and for challenging the sometimes wrong automatic beliefs that can lie behind them. As such, you can use it to reframe the unnecessary negative thinking that we all experience from time to time. Bad moods are unpleasant. They can reduce the quality of your performance and they undermine your relationships with others. Cognitive restructuring helps you to change the negative or distorted thinking that often lies behind these moods. As such, it helps you approach situations in a more positive frame of mind. Cognitive restructuring was developed by psychologist Albert Ellis in the mid-1950s in the field of rational emotive behavior therapy that helps people mentally work through a reflection process to consider if they want or need to change their thinking and therefore their behavior around some emotions. It is a core component in cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. You can use CBT to control and change negative thoughts which are sometimes linked with damaging behaviors. The process of cognitive restructuring involves a few different steps. One, identify the situations that are triggering negative thoughts or moods. Two, assess how you are feeling in the moment. Three, identify the negative thoughts that you are having in response to this situation. Four, look at the evidence to either support or refute your negative thoughts. Five, focus on the objective facts and replace automatic negative thoughts with more positive, realistic ones. We can practice cognitive restructuring through the ABCDE model. In this model, A stands for the activating event or adversity. B stands for your beliefs about the event or adversity. C stands for your emotional consequences. D stands for disputations to challenge self-defeating belief. E stands for the effect or consequence of challenging the self-defeating belief. We must realize that thoughts are simply thoughts. They do not determine who you are. We take control by rejecting the irrational thought and purposely replacing it with a more realistic and more positive thought, perhaps using positive affirmations. Make sure to check out the link in the description box to join my affirmation community. There are overlapping concepts and truths up until now to assist you to rise above your negative and irrational self-talk by looking at yourself through the lens of neuroplasticity and cognitive restructuring in order to rephrase and reframe your beliefs permanently and in so doing, becoming a more resilient person. Remember, an important way this concept can be practiced is to use a learning journal if you have one where key moments of tension, stress, or any other significant emotional switching has happened. 
this journaling can help you work through the process by writing down the A, B, C, D, E model and working through the different elements. The main takeaway from the A, B, C, D, E model and cognitive restructuring is that while environmental factors can undoubtedly harm our lives, we do have some control over how we react and respond to those factors. For the most part, the more positively we respond, the more positive our outcomes will be. This does not mean that no harm can come to someone with a positive attitude, but it does mean that a positive attitude can get someone through rough times quicker and more effectively. Having a positive attitude also does not cost anything, so it cannot hurt to try to keep a positive outlook. We all would be better off if we remembered these principles. In many situations, we may not be able to change the environmental factors or activating events that occur in our daily lives. However, we can keep in mind the immense power of our own beliefs in shaping our everyday experiences. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that it helped answer some of your questions and how to control your mindset. I'll catch you on the next episode. Until later.